Thank you, Abby. Good to, good to chat with you. Um, the children may be dismissed at this point, ages three through seven. Thank you, Macy. I've come to believe the hardest part of being a preacher on Sunday is the easiest part is preaching. The hardest part is everything else that goes on, like microphones and what you're supposed to do in the middle of all these things. I constantly uh, forget if my voice goes out a little bit. I've had a cold for a couple days. Um, with the COVID world we live in, I thought it would be thoughtful to go to the uh, urgent care just to get a negative COVID before I came here and spewed upon all of you. And uh, I was negative for COVID and strep and flu. And the, the ER doctor basically said, you know, back in the day, we would have called this the common cold, is what he said. It was kind of his way of saying I was an idiot for being there. But um, I did it for you. Now, he actually gave me a steroid shot, which is helpful, make me feel better. I will uh, administer the sacraments, but I will not be serving those, just to be mindful. So um, just so you have that in your, in your wake. Um, okay. Um, but we're, we're finishing our parable series today. Uh, the parables of Jesus and Luke. We've talked about uh, his upside-down kingdom, that he's taken the world of the first century, and he's taken the world of the Jewish world, and he's flipped it upside down. And so in doing that, he's disoriented everyone. The, the disciples are attracted, and they're drawn to this man, Jesus. No one speaks like this, and yet they don't know who he is. And then the Pharisees, religious people, are undone because he's busting all their categories in ways they've never thought. And he's going to show, he has shown, he's the king. He's bringing a new kingdom. And will we follow um, this kingdom? He teaches in a new way, and he does it in stories. And I hope through this last couple months, the biggest takeaway, one of the biggest takeaways is that telling stories uh, is Jesus' way of loving us. Telling stories. It's his way of accommodating to our weakness, our frailty, our hard-heartedness, he comes from the back door instead of busting the front. Sometimes, you know, Paul does that with direct lines, but Jesus does it in a way um, sometimes that we couldn't hear. He says great things. He says hard things. But through story, he hopes that he gets a, a hearing that might not hear before. And so stories tell us that it's not just the message we proclaim as Christians, but it's also the manner and the mode, right? The right thing in the wrong way, at the wrong time, is not the right thing, that whole thing, right? Um, Jesus models that in his interactions as he engages. He is pastoral and wise, how he communicates with the disciples, the religious leaders, and the crowds. Uh, would you stand for the reading of God's word? This is uh, Luke chapter 20, 9 through 19. I'm going to read verse 19. I don't know if it's on your sheet. I don't think it is on the screen. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to the tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. 
Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And then verse 19 said, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told them this parable against them. But they feared the people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Some of you may have heard of uh, Peter I, or Peter the Great of Russia. Um, he was great for a number of reasons. He was a the ruler of Russia from the late 19, or 1600s to the 17, early 1700s, he, uh, he modernized Russia. He updated the calendar. He updated the alphabet. He created the first uh, Russian navy. He strengthened the Russian military. He kind of brought them into the modern era. He created that great city, St. Petersburg, which has never been. Supposedly a lovely, beautiful place on the coast. Um, did a lot of great things. But perhaps you know him most... Uh, by one thing he did, he had a son, uh, Alexei, and he feared that Alexei's son would take his throne. And Peter loved power, and he loved authority. His son uh, said that he would abdicate the throne, and he even fled to Austria to get away from his father, who was afraid that the son would take over. Peter was so afraid, he thought the people that didn't like him in Russia would would rally around Alexei and would get him, and they would overthrow his throne. So he sent soldiers to find his son in Austria. And he promised that if he came back, that he would be treated fairly and kindly. And so his son came back. And then in 1718, when Alexei came back, the father, Peter the Great, tortured and killed his eldest son, Alexei over power. Um, History is full of stories of leaders and rulers that are afraid of power, of authority, of losing it. So they act in harsh and brutal ways. Um, I've mentioned to you that Jesus tells the stories, parables to love. He also has been telling parables throughout to hide something of his uh, revelation of who he is. Sometimes you'll hear the, uh, the, the idea of the messianic secret. Jesus tells stories, but they're kind of veiled. He doesn't want you to know. He doesn't want you to know. He doesn't want you to know. Well, he gets to this parable, and it's, this is Luke chapter 20. He's already in Jerusalem. He's a few days left before he's being crucified. He's already come in. They laid palm branches down, Hosanna, Hosanna, and he's near the end. And so this parable pulls back more and more. The language is very clear. This is a self-revealing story of who he is picture of who he is. He's putting his cards on the table, and the Pharisees know, and they don't like it, because they're the rulers. They're in power. The start of chapter 19, Jesus is in the, in the temple, and he's teaching. He's speaking on their turf with power. It says, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the, ten, in the synagogue, preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up, and they said, Tell us by what authority do you do these things? 
Well, who it is that gave you this authority? We didn't authorize you to do this. What are you doing? You're on our turf. This is the temple. They're the leaders of the temple. They're the keepers of the temple. And Jesus come in to overthrow, to undo, right? To upside down, turn over the kingdom, the temple on their turf. It's like, a, you know, here in like football games, you know, teams will... All, uh, on, on other teams' turf, I think Florida State did this a few years ago. You know, the, uh, you're, in a, you're in an away game, and, and, and right before the game, you know, your, your team's getting riled up, and they go to the middle of the field, and they start, the opposing team starts stomping on the field. You know, they throw the spear down on someone else's turf. And you're like, you don't do that. You don't come on our field and discredit our field. This is our home turf. This is the Pharisees' place. They are the rulers. They are the authorities. And then Jesus comes with these words, and it reveals... His authority is a greater authority, and they are threatened, and they want to eliminate the authority and the threat. Verse 19, at the end says, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable about them. (laughs) Shocker, right? You guys got it. They perceived, but they feared the people. In other words, they heard Jesus talk, and they talked together, and they said, we have got to get our hands on him. In a few days they will. He'll be crucified. They were scared of his authority. What do we learn about this story? Let's see, first of all, brief summary of the parable, briefly, brief interpretation, and then we'll get to application. Summary of the parable. There's a man uh, who had a vineyard, and he's an owner. And uh, the owner goes away. Uh, uh, he owns it. This would be common in that time, be common today. You own some land. So you get tenants that live there and work the land. And so the owner goes away to another country. He goes off, it says. And then while he's gone, he sends servants to come back, and they're going to get fruit from the, the, the produce and bring it back, get a report on how things are going. And he sends one, and he sends two, and he sends three, and all of them are treated poorly. They're beaten, they're rejected, and they're sent home empty-handed. Finally, the, the owner decides he will send his beloved son, and his reasoning is that surely... They'll respect the owner's son. In those days, the, we've seen in other parables, the son represented uh, the father. There's a connection between the father and the son. So if the son's going to speak, the heir will represent the father's wishes. So surely they'll show respect. They'll get themselves in order. But the son is treated worst of all. Verse 14, but the tenants saw him, and they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And Jesus ends the, parable with a, ends the parable with a question and an answer. He says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's the story. Let's see how the interpretation is. I've said, as we looked at parables, we talked about this early on, a lot of times people over allegorized parables, right? They make every person, every character, every, every piece of the story a symbol. They try, to, they try to make it, this means this, and this means this. We get into some weird interpretations. Most parables work on analogy. So there's some kind of comparison between this thing and that thing, but they're not necessarily this, trying to be the same thing. So the unjust judge, remember with the widow, she kept begging and begging, and he finally gave in. And then it says, how much more, right? God is, is making comparison to judges like this. God's not the unjust judge. But how much more we can make a connection, a comparison, an analogy to apply it. But here, it's pretty obvious who the characters are. 
because the story tells us that they're understanding it. We just read verse 19. The Pharisees perceived it was about them. They were the wicked tenants. They're telling us. We know what the interpretation is. It also says in verse 16, when they get done telling the story, that they will be, the wicked tenants will be destroyed. And it will be handed to another. They say, surely not. The audience can't seem to imagine uh, another way. So they seem to understand who the people and the pieces of the story are. So who represents who? The vineyard owner is God the Father, right? Uh, he's the one that owns it. He sends, uh, he gives tenants to be over the vineyard. The vineyard is a picture of the kingdom of God. It's a picture of the world and our care of it and how we're to uh, oversee it and to care for it as his kingdom would grow. The tenants are a picture of Israel. Israel was particularly the leaders of Israel who were given charge of the temple to be over the, the, the rule and the reign, to administer the Torah, the law, to be over it, to take care of it, to till it. The servants that are sent are who? They're the prophets, right? Throughout the Old Testament, we see prophets, those that speak, thus saith the Lord. And if you know anything about the prophets, they weren't treated very well, right? Jeremiah and Isaiah, Ezekiel, um, they weren't treated. Prophets get, prophets get cast out to the wilderness, and often they get killed. And these prophets come, one, two, three, and they reject it, and they're beaten. The very picture of the prophets, finally the owner says, I'll send my beloved son. That's a pretty big word, beloved son, right? We know where that, remember that um, Jesus is baptized with John and, and uh, in John 3, and Jesus says, the father, the voice comes, and the dove's there, and it says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so Luke picks up that phrase, beloved son. It's a picture of Jesus, right? He's the, he's the one who is on the, this week, that week will be crucified. The destruction of the tents and the giving of the vineyard to others is a picture of God's judgment on Israel. You failed. You haven't stewarded it. You haven't stewarded it. In fact, you've rejected every opportunity. You will be judged, and I will give it to others. That is the Gentiles. That's us coming in to inherit this kingdom, to take it on, to live it out. So that's the story, and that's the interpretation. Um, application. What do we learn? I want to show us a couple things. We learn about the patience of God. You know, our first instinct could be, um, man, God, you know, the tenants did that, and they're going to, he's going to destroy them. Um, you know, we think of God, we can think of God as being harsh and, uh, you know, judgmental. Uh, he says these words in verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken, and if anyone, if it falls on anyone, it will be crushed. You know, last week, the, the word slaughter was used in the parable. Man, it's a hard thing. It's harsh. Well, let's first stop and think about it. Jesus is telling a story about people that he's talking to. This is primarily, they're the people around, but he's primarily speaking to the, the leaders of, of Israel, the Pharisees. He's telling them a story. They are the epitome of the wicked tenants. They are the epitome of self-righteousness. But he's telling them. They have rejected the prophets. They have not understood the Old Testament. Now the son is right before them, and they're trying to kill him. They're resisting his authority, and they're, at, they're, they're soon to kill him. And it's in that context that te Jesus tells the parable. So what's the difference between the tenants 
and the religious leaders. What's the difference? It's too late for the tenants, right, in the story. They're destroyed. They lost it. But the religious leaders, what? They're before him. Repent. Jesus warns, says hard things for what? For protection, for love, for turning. God's patient. He's patient. You know, if you drive on the road and it says, you know, sharp curve ahead. It warns you. Let's be prepared. Bridge may ice. Okay. Be careful. Warning signs point us and tell us they're there to love us. Many of us will be patient or try to be with people we love, but Jesus is patient with those who hate him, his enemies. His patience is he's long-suffering. Do you see the patience of God? I have a friend in St. Louis, an African-American pastor named Mike Higgins. He's um, got to know him. He's a, a great leader, thinker, and um, he was talking about his own struggles after Ferguson and some of the things that had gone on, and um, he, he, he mentioned a story. He said, you know what's been so convicting is... Um, you know, the, the, the sort of hatred in my own heart and how um, I was talking to John Perkins. Somebody know, anybody know the name John Perkins? He's a famous uh, civil rights leader in probably his 90s now. He's done a great work in the church, written lots of books on racial reconciliation, Mississippi, beautiful lover of the church. He said, I was with John not too long ago. So two African-American leaders, one older, one a little younger. And, uh, and he's, John, Mike's telling me the story. Mike says, I'm with John. And John says, you know, you know something that's been really bothering me, Mike? He said, I've been waking up at night, and it's been on my heart. It's been trou- troubling me. He goes, who, who in, the wor- in our country is concerned about the poor white communities? You know, like East Tennessee, West Virginia, the Appalachian world. He's like, at least the, the African-American, we have a long, long way to go, but the story's on the front page. It's, the, it's on the news. We're talking about racial reconciliation. But, but who's advocating for the poor white communities? Mike, Mike said, hang on a second. <laughs> what are you talking about? He's like, we got our own issues. These, these, not just poor whites, but white people. But these are people that have, have been against you your whole ministry, your whole life. And these are some of the communities that have been most hateful towards you. Mike said, you know, I realized that uh, my, my patience had run out <laughs> for those type of people. I had a mission. I have justice, an agenda. Um, but my love ran out. It was there was no more. John somehow, uh, John Perkins somehow in his 90s who fought racial injustice for years had found the patience and the love to care for people, even people that harmed him, people that he didn't know, people that were being suffering injustice that were not on the radar. Mike said, I saw the limitations of my own love. Jesus' care is, uh, is not limited. Um, because he's patient, he has margin to love. We think of the stories and the, and the parables, and we think about the religious people, and we're easy to jump on them. Jesus loves the Pharisees. He loves the self-righteous. He loves. Who are you impatient with? Self-righteous. The, some of us hate the uber-rich or the immigrant or the... God's patient. 
God's gracious. His patience and love work together. He warns, he warns the Pharisees out of his patience. He also is patient because he sent three prophets, right? Three servants. It wasn't one and done. What do you do when you get angry? I have a knee-jerk reaction, right? We say like hot-tempered. We'd say, you know, he's got a quick fuse, right? We get angry. God's patient. He sends one. He sends two. He sends three. He's slow to anger. The Old Testament is a picture of God. Unfaithful Israel, the faithfulness of God. <laughs> you remember, uh, God took him out of Egypt. He rescued him. It's his people. They're they're, they're being brought, they're being constituted as a new nation of Israel out of slavery. And Moses goes on the mountain, Mount Sinai, to get the Ten Commandments. And they're taking a long time. The people are, are angry and they get Aaron and they what? They get gold and they build a golden calf and they start worshiping it. Moses comes down hearing with the Lord freed people and they're worshiping idols like they saw in Egypt. Moses engages Jesus, engages God, and he says, these words, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping his steadfast love for thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But it says this, But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the, and the children, children's children to the third and fourth Generation. It doesn't say it never runs out. It doesn't say he's never angry. It doesn't say he doesn't deal appropriately. He is, but he's slow. He's patient. But then it says, notice the contrast. We focus on this third and fourth generation. What's that mean? There are generational curses. We get these questions. But it says he's faithful to what? A thousand generations. A thousand. And it says that there's Iniquity repaid on three and four. We think about that. How can God do that? How's God? That's not fair. Thousands. He's patient. He's gracious. He's kind. The patience of God. This story presents it. He has been so patient with Israel. Second thing we see is his commitment. Uh, the commitment of God to the mission. Um, the kingdom will advance and will grow. Um, the Jewish leaders are actively re rejecting Jesus. He takes the vineyard and it says he gives it to another. He gives it to others. He will hand it off. The mission is not over. The Gentiles, us, will be a part of that. That's mostly who we are, right? I think probably everybody here is not. Do we have any Jewish folks here? We are included. This is not a plan B. This is not an afterthought. God has always had the nations, he's always had the world in his heart. Abraham was called, chosen, blessed to be a blessing to the nations. Israel would fail to do that, so prophets would speak. Right? Solomon was supposed to be the great people of God, to be pure and holy, a seat on your hill. Why? So that the nations would see and would flock, and they would bow down to Yahweh. They would know the Lord. They fail. The prophets warn, come back. You're circumcised of flesh, but your heart is far. Be the people of God. They fail. Exile. God brings them back. Be faithful. Now we're here. Jesus is before them. And they're legalistic and they're self-righteous and they've missed the Old Testament and the picture and the pointing of what the Messiah will be and do before them. But the mission is not over. The question is, will we be a part of it? 
right? I mean, that's the question. The mission's gonna happen. The kingdom of God will advance. Will we be a part of it? Will we join in? As Abby shared, will we see our life and our vocation and our family and our community is a part of the mission expanded and taken out? Or will we kind of do our own thing? Serve our own king, ourself? We join with the king, submit our hearts and surrender to him and join in to the mission of what he has for us in the world. Um, it says in the text, when he says he's going to destroy them, verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, it's the crowds, they said, surely not, right? They cannot imagine a world without Israel. Surely not. You mean the leaders of Israel will not be in charge of the mission of God in the world? Like they, they can't fathom of that. They had so presumed upon the goodness of God, they could not imagine not being on top, right? Not being the king in charge. But Jesus comes and speaks in a new authority, and they can't stand that they want to get him. They want to go after him. Do you presume upon it? My parents were Christians. My grandparents were Christians. I'm Christians. I'm Went to Bible school, club. I know, do we presume upon the goodness of God or do we press into God? Do we seek to know him in his community and with the people of God and the word of God? May we not presume. May we join him. We will only join him if we embrace the king's values and submit to him. Finally, he's patient. He's committed to the mission. We see that. Um, finally, this is uh, the centrality of Jesus. It's a good way to end the sermon. It's a good way to end the series on the parables. The whole thing's about him. The whole gospels are about him. They're, they're walking through, revealing to people that would have ears to hear and those that would not, um, the radical nature of who he is. Man, the disciples have no idea who we are and who they are. So Jesus is pulling back the layers, and they have, we have no idea who Jesus is. And he's revealing it more and more to us that we would see and be changed. All for the story that's going on, it ends with this, but he looked, Jesus looked directly at them. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Jesus is telling a story to our audience, and he looks and stares at you. Let me find somebody to stare at. I'll stare at you. I can, you'll make me laugh. Paul, I'll stare at you. And you stare with a point of warning and judgment, just staring down at that person. Right? And he says... But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Warning of judgment. What will you do with Jesus? In other words, the mismanagement of the vineyard, the lack of fruit, the harsh treatment of the, of the servants, all of that is preliminary. All that's bad, but you, you've done the worst. The Son of God you've taken and crushed in this picture. They will in a few days. The chief stone, the stone that's the centerpiece, the whole building hinges on this stone. The whole thing that's built around, you have rejected it. You have a house that will not stand. That's that, that stone the rebuilders rejected is from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is the last of the 
Passover Halil Psalms or Psalms of Praise. They would sing them at Passover every year, the Jews. And they would remember (laughs) together the Jewish people would sing of God's faithfulness and provision when he took them out of Egypt. Right, remember the whole death of the firstborn thing. And he rescued them. They would get together and they would sing of God's faithfulness and his promises that he's provided. He's done this. Can you think of the irony here? They're singing about God's faithfulness. Matthew, uh, to Matthew 25, one of the commentators said, this, is, this song here, Psalm 118, is probably the last song Jesus sang before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. God's provision, his faithfulness. He's been faithful. And Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one they've longed for, is standing before them. And they're rejecting him. They cannot wait to get their hands on him, to crucify him. That, it says, they, scribes and priests, sought to lay hands on him that very hour. They rejected him, and the result is judgment. They will be crushed by him. They will be destroyed. This is the result of rejecting the Son of God. If you reject the Son of God, if you reject Jesus, we say, I will stand before you on the last day in my own, my own merit. I will stand before you confident that I've been righteous enough, religious enough, irreligious enough, whatever you're proud of. I will stand as a good person, moral person, disciplined person. I will stand before you and feel confident before your presence. Or we bend the knee. We say, there's a new king in town. It's a new kingdom. And it's so much more radical than we thought. It's so much more different. But the king is there, and we love power and authority, but we bend the knee and submit our hearts. And then we stand before judgment. We say, I'm covered in the righteousness of Christ. Why should Ben be allowed to be with me? It's because of Jesus. <laughs> I got nothing. I got Jesus. It's it. The whole book, the whole prophets, the whole everything is about him. What are you building your life upon? Is it your accolades? Is it your profession? Is it Jesus? The irony is when we bend the knee, we bow down before him, um, it's not the end, it's actually the beginning. We die to self, but we find life. We find joy, we find peace, we find desire. We found a, a, a vineyard, the king's vineyard, out these doors. We get to care for, we get to tend, and we get to garden. We get to love. We find joy in life and goodness. Will we be a part of it? He is the king. Let's submit to him. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the goodness of it. Thank you for these parables that have challenged us in ways that I can't quite imagine. They're deeper. They're richer. They they hit us in places that we... uh, we least expect. And yet they're your word. And we thank you for it. Thank you for the warnings of scripture that teach us danger ahead. Let's not build our life upon anything else. Let's build it upon you. May it be so. Amen. Um, would you please stand as we recite together the Apostles' Creed? This is a historic creed that we recite often grounds us in that we are part of this faith once for all in the ages. Repeat together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, 
maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. The, uh, somewhat of a progression in the servants, if you, if you heard it, if you saw it. Um, the first servant came that was sent, and he was, uh, he was beaten and uh, left empty-handed. And the second servant was, uh, it says he was, uh, he was beaten and treated shamefully. Shamed. The third one was he was wounded and cast out. And the last one, it says, the son was taken outside the vineyard and was killed. Uh, it is an intensification. You know, Jesus was beaten, stripped and beaten. He was shamed. He was mocked. He was paraded. Uh, Hebrews says that uh, he bore our shame. He scorned the shame. You know shame? You know that feeling? Jesus, it was, it was dumped upon him. It was upon him. Physical shame, the emotional shame. He bore it of sin. He bore our shame. Isaiah 53, it's not theoretical. It's not hypothetical. It's in our place. He took it. Um, it says he was wounded. He was wounded for our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah said. He was cast out. But when the, the, the son came, the beloved son, it says they took him out of the city. He's too, he's too shameful. Yeah, that's what they did to Jesus, right? They didn't crucify him in Jerusalem. He's too much of a criminal. He's too much to look upon. So you take the, you take the rotten, the desolate, you take them outside the camp. We don't want them to defile Jerusalem. So you take him outside. They took Jesus outside the camp, outside the city, away, and they crucified him. They crucified him. Um, <laughs> and we come eat a meal to commemorate his death until he comes again. Isn't that amazing? The patience, the generosity of God, the commitment of God to us. Do you know that that story, that reality, that he was crucified is for you and for me? It's not just what the kids are hearing in the back, and it's a good story. It's the reality for all of us who find their hope and trust in Jesus. If that message is, um, is old news to you, then let's deal with our hearts. You know we get in ruts. But that news is good. It's good always. We need to keep it before us. The Passover meal, after they sang that song, that hymn, Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body. And it's been broken for you. Likewise, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant. This is the new way we were late, and we were late in my blood as the sacrifice, the covering for sins. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, but Christ's blood will be shed for us. 
So often as we eat the bread and drink this cup, we proclaim this death until he comes again.